This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almagwood and precious stones. And the king made of the almagwood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almagwood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Zhang. I'm one of the pastors here in New City. The last... Keep going. We'll go to the next slide. If this were Beethoven, I would let it play a little bit longer, but it's not. <laughs> Anyone recognize this music? This is the arrival of the Queen of Sheba by George Frederick Handel. From its ornate melody and its upbeat tempo, we could tell that the music is depicting a festive and exciting occasion, right? They should really play this for the halftime show last week. But before I was a Christian and knew much about or anything about the first king, I knew about the Queen of Sheba because my high school orchestra played this music. And um, I also half wondered if the Queen of Sheba was the same thing as Bathsheba, which just to clarify, it's not. They're not, okay? Because that that would be weird. Um, But Handel was not the only artist to capture this occasion. 
Plenty of paintings and films were made about Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, and speculations were made about the exact nature of their relationship. I even heard someone said to me that um, Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes because the Queen of Sheba broke his heart. That out of all his wisdoms and wealth, he cannot make her to marry him, and she went home after this. So, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, right? But now I personally don't believe that they, there was anything romantic between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. I think this episode was recorded here at this point of the Bible to capture the apex of Solomon's power. And because in the next chapter, Solomon's reputation and his kingdom began to crumble. In the last few weeks, Pastor Josh and Pastor Brian have been taking us through the life of Solomon in a a very unpresbyterian fashion. They departed from the three-point sermon template. I think Josh had a sermon two weeks ago that had four points. I think one of Pastor Brian's sermons had six points. So I thought I would balance things out a bit. My sermon only has one point today. And because I only have one point, it better be a very important point. So may the Lord help me do justice to this one point. Amen? Amen. Before I get there, let's take a look at what's happening in this story. We see that when the Queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Now, the Bible didn't say exactly where Sheba is located but most historians believe it's in the land of Sabaeans in the Arab Peninsula in modern-day Yemen. Now, if you've been paying attention to news recently, this is a very strategic location in geopolitics because it's located at the mouth of the Red Sea, which is an important trade route both for centuries ago and also for today. And if that land is secure and peaceful, then the whole region prospers. If there's instability and violence in that land, like what we see here today, the entire region is shaken, and even international commerce and economics are threatened. So back in the days of Solomon, there was peace and prosperity in the land, and the queen was perhaps one of the most powerful figures in the Old Testament. Now, this is not the first foreign royalty to come to visit Solomon. A few chapters before this, we saw that the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. But there's something special about the arrival of the Queen of Sheba. Her visit stands out above all the other ones. That's why she gets a whole chapter here. Because her visit alone highlights Solomon's greatness. First, she came with a great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. So this is a state visit. And she came bearing gifts for Solomon. And later it says, Never again came such an abundance of spices as as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So this is certainly a very generous gesture. It's also a show of wealth. She She has the means to travel from the ends of the earth to come to listen to him. And she did it with style. Just imagine the uproar she stirs when she enters the city with all the camels and all the treasures. We also see here that she came to test Solomon with hard questions. That little phrase shows us something different about this queen. 
Not only that she's rich and wealthy, she's also smart. The other kings came to hear Solomon's wisdom. The queen of Sheba came to test his wisdom. You can't carry on an intellectual conversation with somebody unless you are also equally intelligent, because you wouldn't know what to ask, or you wouldn't know what they're saying to you. If you ever experience imposter syndrome, you will understand what this means, and that's why we get nervous around smart people, right? Because we don't want to embarrass ourselves. Now, I didn't get a chance to see Oppenheimer last summer. It's a three-hour-long movie. I have two kids, so I went to see Barbie instead with Pastor Josh. <laughs> But I know that there's a scene in Oppenheimer when Oppenheimer meets with Einstein. Because I, I didn't see the movie, I didn't know what to talk about. But it's a meeting of equals. The Queen of Sheba came to meet with Solomon. It's a meeting of equals. And how does this meeting of equals highlight Solomon's greatness? Well, I think there are several different levels of national greatness, and ancient Israel has gone through all of them. The lowest level of national greatness is military conquest and domination. Right? We see this with King David, the warrior king who subdued all the nations around him with military campaigns. We also see examples of that in Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, even in modern-day Russia. What they're trying to do. The greatness propped up by force, and once the military dominance goes away, the entire empire crumbles. But the next level of national greatness is a tributary system, where surrounding smaller nations come to you and pay tribute and submit to you as vassal states. They acknowledge not just your military dominance, but also your political and economical superiority. They wanted to learn from you, establish trade agreements with you. This was the highest glory in China's history. When in the Ming Dynasty, they boasted ten thousand nations came to pay tribute, and I think that's what happened earlier in First Kings chapter four, when other kings came to hear Solomon's wisdom. But the highest level of national greatness is what we see here, where one nation dominates another nation, equal in its power and wealth, but not with military strength. But with what we call soft power, you know, economics, education, diplomacy, and sometimes even religion. Imagine reading something like this at the end of November and last Saturday of November. The annual rivalry between number two Ohio State Buckeyes and number one Michigan Wolverines took on a strange turn this Saturday afternoon. The Wolverines arrived in Columbus, boasting the best offense and defense in the league, and they were eager to challenge the Buckeyes in what many believe could be a preview of the national championship game. But when the Wolverines saw the passionate fan base in Ohio Stadium, the spotless uniforms of the coaching staff, the turf on the field, the grim, determined faces of the Ohio State players, and lastly, when Coach Harbaugh studied the wisdom in the call signs that he secretly stole. There's no more breath in him. <laughs> He gave Coach Ryan Day the game ball without even playing a snap, took his team home to Michigan, and resigned as Michigan's head coach that evening. Now, wouldn't that be something? Maybe next year. But that may be too good to be true for college football. It's exactly what happened here. 
And when the queen of Sheba has seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And perhaps she knows it's one thing to be smart. It's another thing to apply your wisdom into policies that everyone could benefit from. Let me give you another example. This is a true event. Anyone heard of a thing called the Kitchen Debate? It happened in 1959. At the height of the Cold War, there was an American national exhibit exhibition in Moscow. It was set up to be a cultural exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union. An entire American house was built in the exhibition, showcasing a futuristic kitchens and fancy appliances, and even this box called television. The claim was that anyone in the United States could offer a house like this. And Richard Nixon was the vice president at the time, and he, he and Nikita Khrushchev walked through the house, and they got into several impromptu debates about technology, house chores, and even the role of women in society. Nixon was trying to boast about the American economy and technology, and Khrushchev was critical of the appliances and being hard to use and excessive. Now, no one walked away with their breath taken away, but this demonstrates soft power. The nations could duke it out on a battlefield with guns and bombs, but it doesn't matter one bit unless their people could also benefit and have better lives. The Queen of Sheba saw that Solomon's greatness benefits his kingdom. Therefore, she declares, Happy are your men, happy are your servants, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Solomon's wisdom and greatness causes her a foreign queen from the ends of the earth to praise God. She came hoping to challenge Solomon, but she left with her breath completely taken away. The, the Hebrew literally says, there's no more spirit in her. It seems that the only thing left for her to do was to give thanks to God and give gifts to Solomon. So what's the point here? Is it telling us to be humble and seek wisdom? No, we already do that. We buy books to help us improve our lives, how to better parent our kids, get better at work. Jan and Abby taught a class on how to write a rule of life, and it was the best attended theology lab in January. Is this telling us that we should pay more for wisdom? Well, we do that too. Look at how much this country owes in student debt. It's telling us that we should win over hearts and minds through our wisdom. Now, that's a big temptation for us Presbyterians because we like to be Solomon or at least Tim Keller so we can somehow defeat an argument with a witty remark or insightful question, maybe even just with a, a piercing look. And then we will win over hundreds of people to Christ. How many of us could actually be as wise as Solomon or Tim Keller? So what's the point of this story for us? Well, this story is intended to be a warning. 
Because Jesus used it as a warning. Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here. Pastor Josh hinted at this verse several times in the series. I'm glad he left it to me to explain the full context. Because Jesus was directly referring, referring to our story today. So let me read the full story to you. You can follow along if you want to. It's in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So like the Queen of Sheba, when the scribes and Pharisees heard about Jesus' reputation, they came to test Jesus. But they didn't come with questions for wisdom. They asked him for a sign, some sort of miracle, to prove that he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. Now mind you, we still do that today. We come to test Jesus, asking for proofs, for signs, for healings. If God proves satisfactory to our inquisition, we'll believe. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving around with a friend who has deconstructed. And he said it feels irrational to base his beliefs on a very old book. And then we were driving around in the city, and he pointed to a high-rise, and he said if somehow that building levitates off the ground, and he could drive underneath it and comes out unharmed, and then the building comes back down, then I would believe. Now, he was half-joking, but I think he was sincere in his desire to see something extraordinary happen before he could believe in God again. And Jesus answers the Pharisees, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemns it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus refused to give them a sign. I'm not going to just do a miracle for you to satisfy your curiosity. He's not a magician that needs to prove himself to us. We need to believe him based on what he has shown us. And reject him at our own risk. In the final judgment, the queen of Sheba will testify against us because she came from the end of the earth to hear Solomon, but one greater than Solomon is here. And yet we refuse to believe in him. How foolish. How awful. But I imagine the Pharisees will respond, All right, Jesus, if someone greater than Solomon is here, we would listen to him. But where is he? You? No, it makes sense to listen to a greater king, to go to a more prestigious college, seek out a more famous professor. But is this not Joseph, the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers and sisters with us? Isn't he from Nazareth? What good can come out of Nazareth? Where is his power? his wealth, his wisdom. And not only that, a few days later, he managed to get himself killed on a cross. How is he greater than Solomon? 
And that's where the wisdom lies. As if Jesus already anticipated their skepticism, he answered their request with a reference to Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly, in the belly of the great fish, so would the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Son of Man is an Old Testament title for the Messiah, who is supposed to be God himself, the Ancient of Days. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, the Messiah will also lie in the grave for three days, and on the third day he will rise from the dead. By not giving the Pharisees and scribes a sign, Jesus actually gave them the biggest sign of all. By not answering their questions, he provided the most profound answer. It's that the God of the universe has left his grand throne. He came to earth as a humble carpenter. He sacrificed himself for you on the cross. He was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. It tells you that you and I are such hopeless sinners, we can't help but to mess up our lives. But God loved us so much that he refused to let us go. He came to be one of us. He died for us. And just as his raised from the dead to the eternal life, will be raised to glory with him at the end. The queen of Sheba saw Solomon rule with justice and righteousness. Jesus' death and resurrection justified us and made us righteous. Solomon inspired the queen to praise God. Jesus reconciled God's enemy to be his children. Now I can imagine some of you may feel a little bit disappointed at the moment. That's it. I've heard this before. Tell us something new or more profound. But listen, I know you've heard this before, but has it sunken yet? The Queen of Sheba came to Solomon with hard questions, and maybe you have heard about Jesus. You have questions for him too. What kind of wisdoms do you seek in this church this morning? Are you looking to improve your marriage? Do you want help to be a more ethical person? Do you need help to live a happier life? Are you seeking healing or a sign or a date? I hope in time we can help you answer some of these questions. We can offer nothing better than this piece of wisdom. That God loved you. and He has died for you, no matter who you are and what you have done. And because of what he did, you are saved. You have hope. If this sinks in your heart, it's the wisdom that makes all the other wisdoms small by comparison. This surpasses all the wisdoms of Solomon because it's not just theoretical. It's real, it's true, and it happened. I've told many of my friends in China, if you want to look into Christianity, don't ask whether you agree with its ethics, or whether you like its teachings, or whether its stories interest you. Go find out if Jesus Christ really lived on earth, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. Because if that, if that didn't happen, nothing else matters. But if that actually happened, then your life can't be the same anymore. Because the world has changed. And this may be old news to you, and it's kind of losing its appeal in the West these days. But what Apostle Paul said 2,000 years ago still rings true today. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribes? Where's the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, what does that mean for you today? The deepest wisdom of the world claims that you're loved by God and you're saved by God, and you have certainty of an eternal future with God. You were nothing, and now you have everything. If you know this, it will make you wise. It will give you a grip to interpret your life. It will give you hope in the valleys. Give you an anchor in the storms. It's not just, but it's just not not just a wisdom, and how to have hope. It's also wisdom how you can live and win over the world. Jesus' death and resurrection now becomes a pattern for us. We can share about Jesus using soft power like testimonies, and preaching, and apologetics. But the best way, the best way to conquer the world is by sacrifice, by weak power. He died to win our hearts. He blessed when he is cursed. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. That means we can make sacrifices for other people, take the lower positions that no one wanted to take, become the servant that nobody wanted to be, do the cleaning that none of your roommates wanted to do, volunteer to do overtime to help your coworkers finish a project, help a struggling family watch their kids. We can become less defensive when we're misunderstood. We can love our enemies, turn the other cheek. When someone asks you for your tunic, give them your cloak. Also, give above and beyond what other people expect of you. If someone forces you to go a mile, go with him an extra mile. And for us, that literally means walking an extra mile as you find parking spots on Sunday morning, so that you don't block our neighbors' driveways. No care for the people that are forgotten by society. Look out for the weak, defend the helpless, provide for the orphans and widows. And I just heard this morning that some of our ESL teachers drove someone to Cleveland this week, took day off, took Wednesday off from work, drove someone five hours to immigration court to help this refugee. When reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We've been singing this song the last few weeks. O saints, fix your eyes on the Savior and count all your righteousness lost. Be found in His love and His favor and shared in His death on the cross. That all of His power and victory imparted to you may abound in sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. You share in His glory and crown. That is weak power. If one person lives like this, it's a testimony. If a whole church or a whole community lives like this, it will be a revival. That's how the persecuted Christians conquer Rome. That's how the house church is conquering China right now. That's the deepest wisdom we can offer you. So heed this warning from Jesus: something greater than Solomon is here, and more importantly, something greater than Solomon. Has sacrificed himself for you.
Now listen to him and take up your cross and follow him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've manifested your wisdom to us, not through great signs and wonders, not through the great wisdoms of this age, even though we do believe that your wisdom surpasses all the wisdom and could win any arguments. But you did it through weakness, through your death and resurrection. And through the weakness of your people, your church of sacrifice, in humble humility to show forth what your power and what your wisdom is truly like in this world. So we pray that you will help us to understand this wisdom. Open our eyes to see. Give us strength to lift this out to the world so that other people could understand this wisdom that you have manifested through us. That strengthen us at this table. Give us power to live this sacrificial life of weak power. To win over the world for you and to show forth your wisdom that's beyond this age. Pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.